This podcast is sponsored by Xgrowth. Xgrowth is the APAC ABM agency. If you and your organization are looking to land and expand enterprise mid-market deals, Xgrowth is the agency to help. Xgrowth works with a wide range of international and global technology vendors, service providers, and B2B SaaS companies. If this sounds like some of your interests to know more about, make sure to check out Xgrowth at xgrowth.com.au. That's xgrowth.com.au and chat with the APAC ABM agency. What's up, marketers, and welcome to another episode of the Growth Colony Podcast. I'm Liza from Xgrowth to tell you that each episode we bring in B2B leaders to chat about how you can achieve those everyday wins in the marketing world. Whether you're new to the B2B game, working at a leadership level, or even just showing some interest, we know you'll love the episode. So grab a drink, get comfy, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm Shane Hoda with Xgrowth, and today I'm talking to Andrea Clatworthy, Global Head of Account-Based Marketing at Fujitsu, about pipeline acceleration and deal-based marketing. Now, this is a quite a hot topic, especially now where a lot of organizations are looking at expanding their customers and diving deeper in terms of the customers that they currently have and deals that they, they have in the pipeline. So I'm super excited to have this conversation with Andrea. Andrea is a superstar in the ABM world. So I am very much looking forward to this chat. Andrea, thanks for joining us. Shine, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to having a chat. Same here, same here. I am, uh, I'm super excited for this chat. And I think what will be really good is if we could define deal-based marketing or, or DBM for people who are listening, I'd love to hear your definition of what deal-based marketing is. Cool. That's a really good question, and people often ask me this. So if you think about ABM, which we're all familiar with, so account-based marketing is about a marketeer working really closely with the sales team. This is in one-to-one ABM. To deepen relationships and grow with that account. So deepen relationships, think about how do you position, what's your reputation, and the revenue will follow, right? So that's about uh, working with your timescales, thinking about what, what stories do you want to take to that customer to achieve those objectives. So very much your timescales. Now deal-based marketing is um, working to the customer's timescales. So they've probably already worked out what they want to buy. So in, in theory, they would have issued an RFP or something similar in our industry anyway. So they're, they're quite a lot further down the buying journey. So deal-based marketing is about still working really closely with the account team or the sales team or the pursuit team, whatever you want to call them, to convince the customer to choose you. They've already, they've already made a choice that they want to do whatever it is they're trying to do. They will need to buy something to help them achieve a business objective of theirs. And deal-based marketing is about encouraging, persuading, if you like, that they're going to choose you above the competition. And it's working to their time scale. So if they've issued an RFP, request for a proposal, then they've probably put a time scale in there. So you're working to their time scale, not to yours. Got it. Okay. And... Andrew, what, what situation does it make sense to implement deal-based marketing? 
yeah it's not right for every situation so the way we think about it here is that when it's when it's a large deal and that might be large from our perspective or large from the customer's perspective or it's strategic or it's super important um, and the numbers stack up then it's worth deploying dbm so when wouldn't you use it is, an, is sometimes an easier way to think about it. So if, for instance, uh, the value of the deal is, I don't know, 100K, right? and you know as an experienced marketeer that you've got to at least spend 20K to do some really good, meaningful marketing and marketing communications to help win that deal, um, then that might be the entire margin from that deal, 20K and 100K deal. Yeah. So, so would you do it? Mm, well, there you go. Then you need to make a judgment call, right? So if that little deal could then be the gateway to, to much more and you really want to win that customer, maybe they're a new customer, then maybe you take the hit on that. But if it isn't, if this is run rate stuff um, or it's an existing customer, then you, you probably think twice before making that kind of investment. So I think some of it's around those commercial decisions. Um, and some of it will be around uh, what's going on in the world of the customer and how important that customer is to you. Interesting. Do you have like a, when, when, when looking at DBM, do you have like a decision-making matrix that you go through and there are certain criteria that they would have certain weights associated to them to whether qualify for DBM in the organization or not? Because I would imagine all pursuit team is gonna be like, I want DBM for this thing. Um, when can we start, right? Do you have yeah. that model in place? Yeah, yeah, we kind of do. And there's some real key things that, that we'll have a discussion with the account team or the pursuit team. Where are we in that buying journey? If RFP, if RFP submission is like next week, then, yeah, well, there's only so much you can do, right? So yeah, have you got time to create the story? Have you got time to think through the narrative? Have you got time to identify the decision makers? Um, and work out how you're going to reach them. So there's a time factor here, um, which is a really important one. The, the other thing, that, that commercial piece is really important too. Now, we get around that here by, uh, so for ABM, um, marketing, take that cost generally. Um, but for DBM, we're really clear that that's a cost of sale. So the, the pursuit team have got to cover that cost. So that's a decision they need to make in terms of do we want to make this investment for the cost of sale? Are we going to erode all of our margin? Uh, back, to, back to that chestnut, really. Some of the other things to think through is, you know, um, can we resource it? It's quite important. And where, where are we on qualification? So if we think perhaps we're column fodder, which is very rare these days, then, then why would we put our precious time and effort into uh, working on that when actually perhaps there's more attractive or, or more or other deals that have got a higher percentage uh, of us winning. Um, so there's some judgment call that has to has to take place. In the same way that sales people, sales leadership would make a judgment call on which deals to take to bid, then where we do a similar process for DBM. From a timeline perspective, what is what do you think is the minimum doable time from from your experience? Like, what what is it that you like? If it's under this, I'm not touching this. Is there a time frame that you usually have in mind that that's a massive red flag? Yeah, I mean that that next week RFP submission thing is that's a no no really. <laughs> um, 
it's a it's not just that submission so if you think about the buying journey that a customer go through there'll be several stages in an rfp process and if it's a very long process and sometimes they are can be you know one or two years then then deploying dbm in those scenarios is probably really sensible because you want to continue to be front of mind with that customer so they choose you so there's a few things to think about then so let's go back to the rfp submission next week perhaps that's the first stage and really uh, the, the team are trying to get on the shortlist maybe. That's risky to do that. But then if the process after that is, you know, six months or something, then you would consider that for, for DBM. What we normally do is we look at where we are in our sales stage processes. So we have a one to seven sales stage model and seven is one or lost, that's 11. So if we're and six is close to deal, five is win, eight is bid, um, so if we're at three or four where we're, we're either in pre-qualification and we've qualified it and we're making in, in that initial investment, then that's a really good time to engage. Part of DBM is about shaping the story. And if the story's already set in stone, the team have already really clear what they're doing and they're just going for it, um, then the opportunity to influence that story is probably minimal. And then you have to think about, well, what's viable? What can we actually do? So asking questions like, do we know all the decision makers in that buyer group? Have we got relationships with them already? And perhaps if we don't, then deal-based marketing can help there. So we can help identify who those decision makers are and start the communication process to create those relationships with those people. Back to this, everyone's got a choice. Some people will have a preference on which suppliers that they might choose based upon history or bias or whatever. So convincing them that actually you've got the best possible solution for them in their company um, and they should choose you um, it, it, it is achievable with DBM. So there's loads of factors. It's not, it's not a yes, no kind of thing. There's, there's kind of degrees of grey, if you like. Andrew, you've mentioned narrative and, and building the story a couple of times now. Can you unpack that a little bit and in terms of like, what do you mean by that? It's really, in, in, in tech, which is where I work, it's really common that we'd be presenting a solution to a business problem in pure technical terms. But actually, most human beings, regardless of uh, whether they're buying for their company or buying for themselves, will additionally have some emotive part of their decision making. So if you build a story that isn't just, this is the tech we've got, Mr. Customer, but this is, this is how we can help you, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, achieve your business objectives. And this is perhaps how it will make you feel. Bringing that emotion into it, bringing the, the real business benefit of partnering with us rather than anyone else. And that's not just describing the technical solution that you're gonna deliver. That's describing what great looks like, what great feels like, what will be different after they've bought from you and you've deployed with them whatever it is they're buying. So it's just turning it around just a little bit. So we're, we're thinking much more of the business benefits, the language of great rather than the language of technical. And Andrea, what do you, what do you usually find is the input to that? Mm -hmm. Like where, yeah. where do you get the input in order to create that story yeah. slash narrative? Yeah, some of it will be in their RFP. So okay. it's definitely worth reading that. Right? They've put a lot of effort into creating that document. And quite often, 
they'll have some of that background and, and that you know this is why we're doing it type stuff it's really easy to forget that other sources of information will be publicly available stuff so what, what's the company's strategy and can you work out where whatever it is they're buying is is contributing to achieving that strategy so then you're thinking about what are the imperatives and the initiatives that the customers put in place and it might be you know i don't know their sustainability agenda it might be how do they improve customer experience for their customers it might be how do they improve employee experience for their employees so thinking about the end objective uh, enables you to, to craft that story so that you're addressing that um, rather than features and benefits of what you've got. You can ask the customer. Well, often there'll be dialogue in the in the deal process. Ask them. You know, human beings. <laughs> you know, take that first party insight if you like. You know, where the the accounting, the pursuit team are having dialogue with the customer. Make sure they ask those questions. Why? Why are you buying it? What are you trying to achieve? And then you can weave that back into uh, the story that you're creating. Very interesting. Okay, so that's that's the input of it, and then you create the narrative. Let's talk about the the outcome, which is which I'm guessing it becomes more tactical mm, in terms yeah. of you've now built the narrative. Mm -hmm. What is the outcome from there, and and what shape and form can can DBM take from a tactical perspective? Yeah, so you've created the narrative, you've got your messaging house, you've got your value proposition. So you're clear on what messages you want to land with the decision makers. So that, so then I, I touched on this already, identify who those decision makers are. And work out your where your relationship is with them. Are they neutral? Are they advocates? Um, are, are they negative about you? And then you should target those individuals with your marketing communications. How do you do that? To answer your question, what are the tactics? Just think about the entire marketing mix, the toolbox at your disposal. Use everything. Use above the line, below the line, through the line. Make it up if you need to. But get your message in front of those people. Um, so you can think about all of those marketing tactics and then not forgetting that you know, you've got this great communication channel, which is your deal team. So your human beings from your company talking to their human beings. So they've got their part of this. They're part of the communication channel to land those messages with those key people. So if you're doing that in a really joined up, omni-channel, integrated way, then the chances of success are higher. Chances of your customer starting or prospect starting to hear, starting to understand the value that you're bringing by, by you delivering that story are much higher. So, so tactically, everything. Leverage anything, yeah, just get that Every, message in uh, front of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So sometimes you would have created content and, and created engagement opportunities. And other times you might be leveraging what you've already got in play. So for instance, supposing you, you are uh, sponsoring, I don't know, a third party event. Just think of a big one, I don't know, that most people know. Mobile World Congress, perhaps, which moves around, what's in Barcelona, doesn't matter where it is. If you're going to be there and you know your customer's going to be there because you've done the insight and you understand that and perhaps you've invited them to be there, then in that invitation process, make sure your messages are woven in to the invites, be that email or however else you're going to invite them. And then once they're there, make sure you're landing that message again. And that might be through the conversation or perhaps it's how you've got your stand or your space messaged. Um, and then the follow-up process, land the message again. So you've hit them with the same message consistently 
at least three times through that process. And you may have already decided to be at that event, so there's no additional cost. So, so you're leveraging what you already have. Does that make sense? I love that. It does. It does make sense. What are some of the mistakes that you've seen marketers make with deal-based marketing? That's a really good question. I think there's some bear traps to look out for. In if you're mar- if you're if the deal is in the public sector, so into a government organisation, quite often there'll be rules about how you can market to them when you're in that buying process. So if you so if if that in the scenario that you're working in, the customer's really clear, do not market to us during this period, and you do, then you could find yourself out of the running. So things yeah, there's little things like that to look out for. Sometimes a customer will tell you, do not, even if they're not in the public sector, do not overtly market to me. So then you've got to think about, well, how do I land my messages indirectly? So, so, so a big mistake would be just using email because that's a direct communication. If you decide that email is going to be your primary channel, and it might be, and that's okay, then make sure the email's coming from whoever the relationship holder is with that customer, not from marketing. But from that from that person, who's who's co- who's being coached by the customer through the buying process, or is the prime person who's engaging with the customer, make it about building that relationship between between your human being and their human being. Interesting. What are you know what are some of the channels that uh, that you've used for kind of getting that message indirectly in front of the customer? What comes to mind? Yeah, yeah. So. There's a really lovely one that you can do. So if it's an existing customer, then if you go through that almost an advocacy process where perhaps you'd create a case study on what you've done in the past, and then you you, you do that with the customer, right? And then of course they need to get it approved. So then there'll be some circulation of that case study amongst people that need to make use of it. And you're reminding them then that, that you're awesome and you've got an existing partnership. And, and you can start to suddenly land some forward-looking messages in there. So it's kind of, it's direct communication, but it's a process that you're working through to create a piece of content. So you're not marketing them about whatever it is that you're discussing with them through in that buying process. You're reminding them of what you've done in the past and how good the future could feel. So that, that's one way to do it. Other indirect stuff, do some PR, you know, getting your message out there in publications that, that they naturally read. So you're turning up where they already are. That's a really good way of doing it. And, and events is a good one to do that on it too. I wouldn't, to, things to avoid, you, perhaps you wouldn't do tons of paid media that directly targets them, you know. That's very obvious, isn't it? And people start seeing your message everywhere then they're gonna go oh, i'm being overtly marketed to <laughs> yeah, it could change their opinion of you and that's what you don't want you know yeah but yeah you don't you don't want to make the buying process more difficult you don't want to make the choice more difficult you you want them to naturally go well, these guys know what they're talking about i'm loving what they've done in the past and maybe they've seen some great case studies that you you've pushed out there gently you know throughout your channels I think just using all of those possible tactics that you can think of that are not about directly communicating with them is, is a good way to think of it. And actually, I mean, I've talked about omni-channel and integrated. That's the way to think about what a deal-based marketing campaign plan could look like. As many channels as you can think of, orchestrated, 
without bombarding your customer or your prospect. Andrea, is there any difference? You talked about how there are seven stages in the sales process and how it starts to really, DBMs start to really apply in stage three, four, and, and onwards. Are there any differences that are very clear and, and, and must be taken into consideration in terms of how you approach a deal based on these different stages? Not really. So it's um, it's consistent across. Yeah, yeah. You might want to change the story slightly. If 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 you're going to follow a model that you know kind of goes epiphany, awareness, decision, purchase. Well, actually, because where the customer is, they've they've already made a decision. Yeah, to put to purchase. So what you need to do is persuade them to choose you. So you could you could devise a content journey that starts with why what what great looks like for the customer in the future and then perhaps a whole load of references so that's one way to think about doing it i think some of the 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 big differences are the closer you move towards decision the you'll typically have a lot more direct communication between the pursuit team and the customer so you'd be thinking about what does that look like when they physically do that um how what communication materials are they using so do you create and you probably the answer is probably yes some consistent branded powerpoint templates for example or some nice leave behinds or or something like that so really really tactical tangible stuff but to ensure that you're delivering the same the consistent story at every single checkpoint what does the rfp response look like are you being consistent in the language that you're using um, and the imagery that you're using, the visual identity you've chosen to put together for this DBM. So think about that. So, so, so some of the, the key differences around between DBM and mass marketing is that for DBM, you're probably marketing to, I don't know, 20 people. How many people in a decision-making unit, right? It's between five and 20. So you're not doing mass stuff. So you can give yourself permission to create things especially for those people which means that you're probably not going to be doing broadcast advertising at that point because you want to land this message, very specific message, around what it is they're trying to buy with those particular people. So you probably wouldn't be doing mass stuff at that point. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I'm curious, Andrea, how how deep have you gone with personalization with DBM? Now, I I understand some, just like you said, some situations, maybe it's a little bit trickier, especially with uh, with government and, and organizations who are like, don't market to me. But how in situations that that hasn't been the case, I am I'm super curious of like hearing examples or that you've gone just all the way in on personalization. What, what comes to mind? I've got, I've got a couple to share, actually. So um both are a few years old, so I'm not breaking any commercial confidence. <laughs> there, there was there was a uh, there was a particular person in an organisation that was very senior, and we just couldn't get to them because they were that senior. Where they lived was a public record, so I worked out how they physically got to the office. So what was their journey? And they worked in central London. Everyone gets public transport in central London, especially um, where their office was based. So I worked out the route that they would have taken 
and the opt if you commute when you get to the tube station you have an optimal route that you'll take through the tube station because typically there's multiple exits there's multiple escalators and there's multiple opportunities to advertise so i just talked about not broadcasting but in this particular example the only way i could get to them was by advertising uh, alongside the escalator that I knew they would get because that was the optimal route from the train to, to the exit and then to their office. So that's like extreme stalking, right? Um, so that's one example. <laughs> um, could be careful, extreme stalking, but um, that seems so, to work so, in that. So, so did, you, did you have like ads up right yeah. there? And what, what were, the, were the ads were just saying you know like uh, Fujitsu and this is like the vision and, and it was part of the story or was it even more direct and be like we're trying to reach you pick up the phone yeah. or something like that no it was definitely it was part of the story yeah okay got it <laughs> yeah 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 it had to be so so that was an, a stalking version for somebody we couldn't get to um completely different scenario somebody that we knew very well existing customer but they didn't like us and had said um, this is in a renewal scenario. Um, they had said there is no way I'm renewing with Fujitsu. Right, so there's a clear message there that that person is a detractor. You know, <laughs> whatever, you want, whatever else you want to label it, detractor, and they're a key decision maker. So we, we knew we had to change our, the perception of us with that person so that they would choose us, and we wanted them to have a positive opinion of us. So we worked really hard to create a narrative especially for that person but then multiple engagement opportunities for that person to tell their story enabled by us so we knew that that person uh, was very proud of the work they'd done they had a little bit of an ego not a massive one but enough of an ego that they would be happy to take public stage if you like and we worked with them uh, on a number of things so that we could enable that person to tell their story. So I'm using careful language here because I don't want to declare who it is. So, um, so for instance, uh, in Europe, the, the FT, Financial Times, is, is, a, is a big publication. We managed to get uh, an interview with the FT for that person. So they're, they're in print, right? We helped them, or did it for them, enter a whole load of uh, awards so that uh, th and through that story right where we're telling their story but we're telling the story of us helping them so we're back to that case study example I was talking about before we're reminding them of the great work that we've done in the past and we're saying to them through this process we really value you so much that we're willing to go the extra mile so that your profile is uh, heightened in the market so tons of stuff like that, so personalised, so bespoke, just for that person. And it worked. It wasn't a quick fix. It took more than a week and it worked. So so that person is an advocate. We achieved the renewal. Uh, we got a very happy customer. I feel like Fujitsu became their that, that pers personal PR agency for that. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love yeah. it. And, and Andrea, for... Uh, some people who are listening for their reference, what is the, and, and I'm not asking specifically for this situation, but can you give a little bit of context in terms of like, what is the average contract side of Fujitsu's deals? And I know some of them are public 
and uh, and it's and it's available. But just for people to have context, and we can talk about ranges, whatever whatever we're comfortable. What are we talking about in terms of like looking at these deals that allows for something like this to be possible? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So it's back to the commercial bit, right? So so typically between five and two hundred million. Got it, got it. And I think that that like really succinctly creates the perspective of what we're talking about um in uh, yeah, yeah 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 absolutely so you know if a deal is smaller then any money you spend is part of the buying process will erode your margin significantly so you do need to make those judgment calls absolutely people often ask me well, so how much should you spend it depends right so it depends what you need to do so if we talk about that that scenario i was just talking about to change perception for one person that didn't really cost anything but it cost us a lot of effort you know, so there are things you can do that don't cost a lot. If you need to create a ton of content, that's going to cost. So you need to think very carefully um, how much you want to spend. If you if you need to specifically, I don't know, sponsor uh, an exhibition or a conference or something, that's going to cost you a ton of money, right? So uh, so back to that example before, uh, leveraging what you've already got is is a good thing. There there is a rule of thumb that I've seen somewhere. It's 0.01 percent of the contract value. You can you can use a benchmark figure if you like. Uh, personally, it's about build. I think it's building it bottom up. What do we need to do? What are the objectives? And therefore, what's our suggested marketing communications plan to achieve those objectives? And how much do we want to spend on it? Got it. So, did you say the the rule of thumb that you've heard is is zero point zero one percent? Yeah, I don't believe that. That's uh, that sounds uh, that sounds small. Sounds very uh, yeah. of, a, of a deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, if it's a two hundred million pound deal, then that's a side. That's a you know that's a meaningful amount, isn't it? Correct. But if it if it if it's a five million deal, then a bit tight. It's it is a bit tight, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. This is about you know how much money does it cost to do something meaningful? Mm, absolutely, and and I think it also depends on business model. If you're in the services space. You have different profit yeah. margins versus, you know, if you're in a SaaS space and you're selling, you know, licenses and, and so on and so forth. So that, that that creates great context. Andrea, we've covered a whole range of stuff. We talked about from definitions of where to use and not to use the EBM, talked about examples and, and tactics. I have some rapid fire questions that I want to ask you. But before okay. I do so, is there anything else that you think we should cover that you, you, you think maybe I didn't ask, it's very crucial with regards to deal-based marketing that we didn't touch on? I think one of the things is about uh, having the relationship and working closely with the pursuit team. So it's really important that the marketeer isn't seen as the bag carrier, that the marketeer has a place at the table. They are the marketeer, they, they are the marketing expert, you know, and what they're not there to do is to uh, pander to every marketing whim of the pursuit team. Pursuit team might have a, a view, which is great, but they're, they're experts in selling. Marketeer is the expert in marketing. So I think being, being able to position correctly and having the, the right relationship with that team is really important. So people say, well, how do you do that? Well, it's about how you position at the start of the process. And then it's about the cadence that you put in, in terms of you know having a regular Friday call, I don't know, whatever it is, but the marketeer being part of that selling process properly and not being 
an add-on on the side, oh yeah, we need some penned PowerPoints and parties. No, you don't. This is a strategic approach. This is about creating a narrative. This is about changing or, or, or moving the dial on those decision-maker units, uh, decision-makers' perception of you so that they choose you. And that, that's, although you end up doing a ton of tactics to achieve that, it's a strategic approach. So that relationship with human beings internally is really important. Andrea, that, that creates another question in my mind. If, if a marketer is getting involved and doing deal-based marketing, what do you think is that really critical skill that the marketer needs to have? Because marketers come from different backgrounds, right? They mm-hmm. come from, mm-hmm. some of them are technical, some of them are uh, copywriter and comms, some come from strategy. What do you think is that number one or the two most critical skills that a marketer who's working on on a on a DBM needs to have to, uh, to and and if they don't, it's 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 very risky and, and and it's going to be a uphill battle. I think some of it's around asking the right questions, and so a question could be as simple as, "Do we know the decision makers?" And quite often I've asked that question and the team will kind of look at me like, well, how can you ask such a hard question? Well, it's a genuine one. And you're going to make them think in that scenario. If they, if it's kind of, you know, you get a puzzled face and, and the answer is, actually, it's a good point, we don't. Then you've instantly proven value just by asking that question. Yeah. And then you work and then you say, well, what are we going to do about it? And you might work on that together and that's okay. But it's asking those hard questions. Uh, another good question is, do we understand why the customer's choosing to buy what they're buying? And if we don't, then we need to work that out so that we can create the right narrative. I appreciate that. Have you read the State of ABM and APAC report yet? If you have, you'll know that 59% of marketing leaders are intending to increase their ABM investment in the coming year. Even bigger news is 0% of survey respondents are going to decrease their investment. It's an exciting time for ABM in the region. Discover the state of account-based marketing in APAC today. Download the full report at abm.xgrowth.com.au forward slash report. That's abm.xgrowth.com.au forward slash report. Okay, let's do some rapid fire questions. So the first question that I want to ask is what is one book, one one resource? It could be a book, a blog, a video, a podcast, whatever it is that has had a profound and fundamental impact on the way that you work or you live. There's a really good book. This is a work context book by an author who's fantastic called Bev Burgess. Bev Burgess, she's written three books, I think now. And there's a good book called the, uh, I've got it here actually, The Practitioner's Guide to Account-Based Marketing. It's in its second edition and it's terrific. It's written as a practitioner's guide. And I dip in and out of this book frequently and I also I recommend it quite a lot. And I've had lots of salespeople read it because they, if they want to understand ABM so that they can better make use of it, which is great. So when, you, when you've got your sellers, your salespeople, embracing the concepts of account-based marketing or, or deal-based marketing in this concept in this context then then you're in heaven really so i recommend that book so bev burgess a practitioner's guide to account-based marketing bev's content is great and she, oh she's I, just terrific i know she's just uh, released her new book 
And yeah. uh, you know, actually, it just arrived today for me. So uh, account-based growth. Um, oh, there we go. <laughs> you got it somewhere as well. Yeah, there we go. That one. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So I'm looking forward to uh, in the break to go through that. Thank, thanks for that. Okay, question number two is if you could give one advice to B2B marketers, what would that be? Learn the language of sales. I love how it's it's short and succinct. Question number three, who are some of the influencers? I mean, we talked about Bev, but who are some of the influencers that you, you follow in the, uh, in the sales and marketing space? So, um, there's a, a group called ACAM, uh, Association of Key Account Managers. And um, I get involved with them now and then, and, but they have some, uh, they have some good thinkers. You notice that's about key account management, so that's selling basically, but managing the relationship with your customer. And ABM is about managing your relationship with your customer. So there's some really strong similarities. Though I'd, I'd recommend, you know, if anyone else is thinking about who, who, where do I get my sales knowledge from, they're a good place to go to. So a, a great resource, I think, for anyone is the, is the agency and supplier ecosystem. Some great thought leadership coming out from agencies. Uh, I'm sharing best practice, case studies, etc. Really good place to go. I'm really lucky that um, for the last few years I've been a judge for the B2B Marketing Awards. So but you, you, really, you get to see some great content that people are, are so proud of that they've submitted it for an award. So very lucky in that regard. Love it. I love it. Bev, last question is, what is something that excites you about B2B today? I'm really excited about the concept of using things like AI in the future. I think there's some, there's some awesome opportunities, especially when we're thinking about data-driven. The artificial intelligence has got a, a role to play. And if we get that right and the AI is telling us ne next best action or creating some content or whatever it may be that you want the outcome to be, that means as marketeers we've got more time to think strategically, to be creative um, and, and worry a bit less about those things that just need to you know, turn the handle on. So I'm really excited about that. I'm also really excited and encouraged that B2B marketing is starting to give itself permission to be less boring, to be less formal, to, to recognise that although we, we call it business to business, it's still human being to human being. So recognizing that people have got emotions and biases and needs and being able to respond to those, still in a B2B context because they're buying on behalf of their company, but, but bringing some of that B2C stuff, if you like, into the B2B world. Andrea, this has been an awesome conversation. And I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. I've learned tons from just, just this uh, this conversation that we've had. So, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are gonna feel the same thing. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Today's episode of Growth Colony was produced by Alexander Hipwell and Liza Maywald. It was edited by Dave Semedo with additional editing by Liza Maywald and music arrangement by Alexander and Liza. Special thanks to Tina Wabe, we couldn't make the show without you. Growth Colony is hosted by Shaheen Hoda, Director of Growth at Xgrowth. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Do you think you'd be a great guest or just keen for a chat? Send through an email at podcast at xgrowth.com.au.
That's podcast at xgrowth.com.au. That's all for now. We'll catch you next week right here on Growth Colony.